Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Okay, I'd like to welcome you all to the Institute of World Politics. Any first-timers? Okay, those of you who won't admit it. Um, just like to tell you a little bit about the Institute of World Politics. Um, we are a graduate school. We have five master degree programs, and we have one doctoral program. We also have 19 certificate programs. And um, it's the, the only drawback is parking, as you probably figured out. Um, and if you if you want additional information about the institute, you know, just get a hold of me. I'm around. My name is Dean Lane. I'm not. I, I'm, that's my name. I'm not the But I like to call schools and say when they say I like to speak to Joe Blow and they say who is this? I say it's Dean Lane. They say oh yes, Dean. We'll get up here. Um, it's my privilege to introduce uh, Mr. Devin, who has 20 years of experience and knowledge in intelligence, national security, strategic planning, chemical, biological, uh, radiological, nuclear, and enhanced explosives. So um, he has experience in cyberspace and hybrid warfare, uh, in business, economics, um, finance, um, He's, uh, he's def definitely been around, and he possesses fluency in Russian. Okay, so you're not going to give it in Russian. No, I won't. <laughs> but I'm willing to try. Watching <laughs> He's also served as an officer in the in the U.S. Army. We who are in the Navy forgive him for that. Everybody makes a mistake. <laughs> and he's also worked in commercial businesses in both um, Ukraine and Russia. Um, he was a a cyber and a, a rush. Well, I got to say this carefully. He was a cyber analyst of Russian things. I was going to say he's a Russian cyber analyst, but <laughs> um, and he did that for the U.S. government. Okay, um, and later a cyber operations instructor. Uh, currently, he's working at um, as an area uh, studies and hybrid warfare instructor for the U.S. European Command and for NATO. So quite an extensive background. You, this should be a great talk. Please help me in welcoming. Thank you. Uh, can you hear? It's fine, right? Okay. Thank you all for coming out here. Um, just want to give you a heads up. They are recording this and will be posted on YouTube. So if you don't want to be famous, uh, you can go to the back and don't ask any questions if you don't want to be famous either. So, uh, so this is actually the, uh, a topic I, I deal with a lot. And the one thing that, that's very interesting is, does anyone have any idea? This is a free, we'll start out with a question, but does anyone have an idea why Russia does, does what they do? So I will pick this gentleman in a second. Well, it, I've always been a believer in uh, nationalism, and it's um, the, uh, the Russians have, you know, since Peter the Greater, Ivan 
terrible, whatever. They, I mean, they've seen themselves as uh, rulers, and they uh, and um, it's just they're returning to their. Uh, you know, even when they were communists, they basically they, underneath it all was uh, Russian nationalism. They uh, they believe in a strong uh, nation's Russian nationalism, and that's what drives them. I like your word that you use, ruler. Go ahead. Well, if I recall correctly, it's been uh, 25 years since I read Henry Kissinger's book, Diplomacy, but that's my sophomore year in college. But remember, you saw about how Russia historically always had this feeling of insecurity. It's like, you know, the Thucydides, you know, security dilemma multiplied, you know, exponentially. Therefore, they always felt they need to expand because otherwise some outsider is always going to encroach upon their territory and threaten their state. I'm going to save the third one for her, so go ahead. Uh, I believe that it has a lot to do with their historic and all the way current, they found out that uh, presenting, informa presenting information, uh, usually this information outside, presents and provides them with a sense of chaos. And out of chaos structures, you get opportunities. And out of opportunities, you can pick and choose which opportunities to exploit to move yourself forward. Yeah, so we see chaos, we see rulers, um, we see um, the Clinton's trap, right? And what's yours? They do what they are, they are doing because their boss told them to do it. <laughs> yeah, the golden rule. He has the gold makes the rules. Yeah. All right. So it's very interesting because one of the, one of the challenges that I see in looking at everything about Russia is nobody's asking, you know, what is motivating them? What is their why? And um, just a little disclaimer here: um, the views and opinions that I present here are strictly my own. They're not. Uh, they don't reflect the views or opinions of any of the organizations that I am currently affiliated with or was affiliated with. So to protect the innocent and the guilty as well. <laughs> All right, so one of the things that um, I'm going to show, does Russia have a strategy? And there's going to be two points. I'm going to show this real short video on YouTube. Um, actually, not on YouTube. But I have a video right here. Can you bring that video up, please? And before you start, I'm going to... If you go straight to the game. So this gentleman, he is a lecturer at King's College, and he was at a conference in NATO, and he actually wrote a really, he's completed two books on Russian hybrid warfare, um, and so he, he knows what he's talking about, but listen to what he says. Russians have a strategy, and there are two uh, possible answers to that, and have to be very careful. Uh, the first one is a short one. I would say, no, Russians don't have strategy, but and part is very important because it leads us, leads us to a slightly longer answer. Uh, so first of all, to have a strategy, uh, meaning uh, you apply consistently and systematically means to achieve certain uh, uh, goals. And we clearly can identify Russian actions as very clear goals that they try to achieve, which is subvert and uh, delegitimize political establishment of the adversaries. Uh, when we're talking about different goals in, uh, which can be achieved in information domain, uh, we can put them uh, generally on the spectrum between very complex goals, very complicated goals, of trying uh, to bring the adversary to your side. This is what we call soft power. And on the bottom of the spectrum will be a much simpler goals of subversion and uh, destabilization. Uh, basically, you don't care about uh, the results, the final outcomes. 
the process of destabilization is, uh, uh, is uh, the goal. Uh, and once you don't care about the results, well, it will be uh, pro-Western, anti-Western, pro-Russian, anti-Russian. This is not the target. The target, the goal is uh, weakening political uh, stability of the opponent. Uh, so once you don't care about the result, uh, and support, the modus operandi basically is to support right uh, against the left and left against the right, uh, support anyone basically who uh, is anti-establishment and is ready to be supported by Russia, which leads us, in other words, that Russia doesn't choose or control who would support those who want to be supported by Russia choose Russia. Uh, and it's a very opportunistic approach uh, to, uh, to the affairs, uh, which leads me uh, to the final uh, bit, where I would say once your activity is based so much on opportunity, uh, and there is no clearly defined, systematically consistent strategy, uh, any such strategy will be basically a burden for the, to get more and more opportunities. Uh, so, uh, a better answer whether Russians uh, have strategy or not, I would say Russian strategy is not have a strategy. So that, that's it. <laughs> I, I'd like to show that video because this is the consensus of all the Russian observers, is Russian strategy is not to have a strategy. <laughs> and. I had, a, I had the pleasure of actually meeting in 2017 uh, Mark Galliati. We ended up chatting for about 20 minutes and I asked him, what do you believe your, your grand new client, since he covers Russia a lot, he's, I, I assume those who follow Russia ran, ran across his name, said, what is, what in your opinion is Russia's grand unifying theory? And he says, I just see them as a criminal organization. <laughs> and if you actually look at it, he, he is uh, very correct in that point. So we get one point, the consensus is there's no strategy. Um, the Russian strategy is not to have a strategy. They don't want to be burdened by it. They just want to create chaos, going to that point. The other one is they're a criminal organization. And that would make sense. So uh, just a little bit of background. I actually have, I gave a five-day class on Russian studies. I will actually give, uh, and we go into the Russian history, but if you actually look at it, it, it what, what founded Russia today? What, what is Russia's origin of thinking? Where does it come from? And we deal with modern Russia. The leaders, Putin, communism. And if you actually look at most communist regimes, what do they end up descending into? Sort of become a criminal, criminal enterprise. Why? Because, well, if you look at communism, it's based off of jealousy. Somebody has that nice big house, I want to take that nice big house from him. That's what a criminal thinks, right? So you see a lot of parallels um, between this, this criminal thinking and the uh, communist ideology. Um, but it goes. It, um, but that is a little bit too simple. That is that it can explain why they, act, you know, their their actions today. And for somebody like Mark Galliati, he's observing this. He says these are all the parallels with a criminal organization. But I go back into Russia because that, that only goes to Russia starting in 1917 with communism. I actually go back further. I go back to um, what is their why? You know, what, what is who's read this book by Simon Sinek? Good book, right? It is. Excellent book, right? He talks about, you know, the golden circle. 
you know, what you do, how you do it, but it's why you do it. Start out with your why. And this talks about organizations, this talks about businesses, this talks about individuals, and you can apply this to countries. So what is Russia's why? And this is a picture of Russia, what I would say is Russia's why. It actually originates from their uh, Christian Orthodox heritage. So come to my Russian class and I will give you a nice block on Russian Orthodoxy and how it shapes it. Very different from Western Catholicism and Western Protestantism. But Russia sees itself as a messianic nation. And if those who follow like German history, remember the German saying the Drag am Ost, no, 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 the drive on the east is the, or in America, go west, young man. Well, the Russian term is the final thrust of self. It comes from their messianic concept because their idea is we have to free Constantinople, and then in the end times, as a messianic nation, we will be the leader, the hegemon, the leader of the world to meet Christ in Jerusalem. This is orthodox thinking. And very different from Western Christian thinking, because in orthodox thinking, who's the instrument of the divine in, in, in end times? It's not the church, it's the nation. So sit in three hours of my class on Russian Orthodoxy, and I will tell you, I will, I will draw that bridge for you. So if you look at Russia since the time of, since the rise of of Islam, they see themselves as a messianic nation during, during the pre-revolutionary times as a messianic nation uh, battling against the antichrist Islam. And you, you, poetry, if you read Russian poetry, talks about you know, the, the, the desire to go back to Constantinople. And very interesting that Catherine the Great, you know, Peter the Great, you know why he had his great embassy throughout Europe? It was not to gain technology. It was to build an alliance with European nations so he could destroy the Ottoman Empire, dispatch the Ottoman Empire. Well, they convinced them, they said, oh, we don't like the Swedes, so we'll help you fight the Swedes instead. Uh, that's why Russians, ca Russia's capital was built on the, uh, on the uh, Baltic Sea and not on the Black Sea, which Peter the Great originally wanted. And Catherine the Great actually had her grandson learn Greek because the hope was is Russia would restore the Byzantine Empire. And it would be, you know, Russia's an unfulfilled nation. But the ultimate goal is to be in Jerusalem during end times and as the Messianic nation. So um, I'm going to, does anybody have a question? So when we use the word messianic, does that mean anything when we come to America? Go west, young man. Right. Um, actually, Manifest I, I, destiny. Right, well, actually it comes in because when, when I give this lecture in Europe, they said, well, isn't America like that? Aren't we a messianic nation? I said, no, we're not a messianic nation. We're a missionary nation. <laughs> we're here to teach people how to live. We're not here to save the world. We're not here to save the world and make it paradise on earth. Here, we're just we're just here to tell you about toilets and democratic institutions. We're teaching you. So we're a missionary nation. So that's always the way I, I, I compare America. You know, Russia is a messianic, and we're a missionary nation. So where did this this come out? So again, it comes from this guy Constantine the Great, and it's very interesting that in Eastern Orthodoxy, he's considered first among he's considered equal among the apostles. And as I said, you go to my Russian Orthodox class, I can break it more down. Actually, in the Western Church, he's not even considered, he's not considered a saint quite yet. Um, but the idea was, again, the, the nation, not the church's instrument. And the emperor is the leader of that nation. So this is where you see a powerful role for the ruler of that country. So what happened in 1453, which traumatized Eastern Christianity? took over the... Constantinople. Constantinople, yes. So that was the fall of Constantinople, and there's only one Orthodox Christian nation that was not conquered by the Muslims, and that was Russia. What? 
Alaska, that's Armenia. Oh. Armenia was it? No. Armenia wasn't. Well, Georgia wasn't, I think. Oh, at some point they were. Uh, but so what ended up happening was this became Russia. Russia saw itself then, okay, now that the Byzantine Empire is gone, the Eastern Roman Empire is gone, we are now the mantle of Constantine. You know, we're going to be the ones bringing about Christ's kingdom. And it worked about 1917. What happened in 1917? The atheists took over. The atheists took over. But guess what? The Russian mindset was pretty compatible with, with, the, with the, the communist ideals. Because what does communism offer? It offers an earthly paradise. And if you actually look at the imagery here and their propaganda, what do you see here? Lenin cleaning the world of the unclean. We see their propaganda targeting a multicultural audience. We see that even the symbol, the emblem of the Soviet Union, in many languages says workers of the world unite. And it's this imagery of this world becoming this worker's paradise. And for a Russian with, a, with people with a messianic mindset, you get rid of Christianity, you replace with communism, that's a perfect fit. And it actually worked well for the Russians. This was Russia, this was the Soviet Union in 1980. This was their sphere of influence. They were at the cusp of creating a new international system. They were competing with the United States. But if you look at all the countries in the red, they were part of the Soviet international system. And by the way, all the little red dots where they were where they were supporting pretty powerful insurgency movements against the governments. Now where you see the blue dots, that's where the United States was doing insurgency movements. So that was Afghanistan, Angola, and Ethiopia. So what ended up happening in 1991? They lost their ideology. And I like to show this picture because this shows the, the, the founder of the Soviet Union, Vladimir Lenin, being the statue being torn down in front of the business center. The, it's truly karmic justice, right? So what is the issue that Russia faces right now? And this is now we're going to go into, okay, now why are they acting this way? Why are they into chaos? It's because right now they don't have a unifying ideology. They don't have a unifying belief system that can rally their nation, can rally their resources, can rally their national will that you saw in uh, Eastern Orthodoxy, that you saw with communism. Why do you see that? Because what is Russia by its official constitution? It's a secular, multi-ethnic state if you read the Russian constitution. So you see Putin here with all of these religious leaders. And by the way, most Russians aren't religious. Most Russians actually are pretty cynical people, especially if you've, you've dealt with uh, 90 year, 80 years of an ideology, and you see them experimenting in all sorts of different belief systems. So you see all these people doing yoga in front of the Kremlin, and it seems every now and then uh, Putin tries iter different iterations to create a, a state ideology. So this is back in 2007. This is called the group Nashi. Have you ever heard of them? It was sort of the, the Putin youth movement. Um, and it, it pretty well fizzled up. See, Russia right now doesn't have a unifying ideology. So if you believe that you are a leader, that your country has a special destiny to be a leader, but you don't have your why figured out, what do you do in the meantime? chaos. Okay? Why? Because Russia right now, if you actually look at Putin, if you look at the thinkers, you know, whether it be Alexander Dugan, who's heard of Alexander Dugan? So, you know, he's one of these um, one of these ideologues in Russia. And if you actually try to read his work, um, it blows your mind. Okay? I don't know. I mean, I show my students the video of his talk trying to explain the fourth political theory. Relative, yep. Go ahead. Uh, relative truth and how everyone has their own special truth. Yes, and design by Heidegger. It's like... Your mind is blown. That's the, um, and it makes the students watch it. Because they watched 10 minutes of him trying to explain his fourth political theory. And they said, I'm more confused after listening to him talk. 
And so what is guiding Russia right now? They said, we, can't, we don't have something to unify, unify us, but let's try to undermine the international order. Because when, if the system collapses, you know, we'll still be a powerful country. But hopefully by this point, you know, five years down the road, ten years down the road, we'll have an ideology to, to, to rally our nation, to rally our national will. And guess who's joining them on this part? China and Iran. There's, a, there's several other countries, you know, minor players like North Korea, um, Venezuela. So uh, this is where we see when you when you go to Alfred Friedman back in the video I showed is their strategy not to have strategies to create this chaos. So that is good. So and what is motivating their why is their why are they trying to go chaos? Because they don't have an ideology. So how are they doing this? So now we're going to see okay this is their why because they're a messianic nation. Now let's get how we're doing this. So if you actually look at the Soviet Union, it's a good place to start. Who's heard of correlation of forces? So, what, in your words, what is correlation of forces? Um, I can't uh, phrase it any better than the definition we have on the screen, so we yes. just go with that. It's everything. And um, I'm going to step back, but let's look at this. I guess you could say kind of like a combined arms for Com Combined arms, unrestricted warfare, not even arms, but arms talks about something kinetic. Right. Use everything of national power. You use economics, public opinion, internal division, political allegiance, diplomatic relations. Initial phases are very important, and we're going to go into this because when we talk about Russian cyber strategy, initial phases are very important. But I want to look at this. Everything is available from use, from children to nuclear weapons. So who here knows about the rules governing uh, U.S. intelligence operations? Who, what, what type of people can't we use for uh, intelligence operations? Peace Corps. Journalists and... Uh, <laughs> and, and uh, religious, uh, religious, peace, peace corps, corps. Um, some other, and the various sundry NGOs. You can, but you need an extraordinary exception signed by the president. Yes. Um, we have a lot of education. limitations. Education, yeah, that's a good point. Education institutions of Fulbright scholars. We have these rules. By the way, Europeans also have those same rules as well. Um, the Russians don't. Because they said everything, everything's part of national power. Now, how does this play out? Um, I'm going to give an example back in 1974. So the Portuguese Empire basically dissolves itself. And the, the Soviets had no ability to send ambitious forces. Uh, they basically do this abrupt decolonization. In 1974, there's a coup. And the Portuguese have their colonies in Angola, Mozambique, Guinea-Bissau, Cape Verde. They basically do a quick decolonization. They basically said, you guys are guys fend for yourselves. And the Soviets were actually sponsoring a small group of uh, guerrillas there, but actually the more powerful guerrillas were nationalist-based ones, there was larger nationalist-based ones, and they were ones backed by the, by the communists in China, which had support. But the, the Russian, the Soviet-backed ones were actually much weaker, but they ended up winning. You know why? They had no ability to project, they didn't have any ability to project their power there. What did they look at correlation of forces? So they're looking at the, they're looking at the world and says, okay, how do, we get our, how do we get forces, military forces, to Angola? Who's the country close to Angola that could help us out, our satellite? Cuba, right? But who could stop Cuba? It's 1974. U.S., right? But what's going on in the U.S. in 1974? Drawdown from Vietnam. Uh, Americans are sick of the war in Vietnam. What's else going on? Watergate. Watergate. So I said, America's, America's out of the picture. So we can send the Cubans. But who would probably stop them? What other country... What other powerful country uh, is a big player in Africa? South, South Africa. Africa. South Africa. Africa. Uh, France. 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 You know, South Africa doesn't have a navy or air force to stop Cuban uh, flotillas from coming, going to Angola. 
France, but what does but the Soviets say? Okay, France won't stop us. You know why? Who watches the news uh, news in France regularly? What do they got going on all the time? Strikes. Okay, they basically told the French the French were going to the French are actually going to make a move on these former Portuguese colonies and bring them into the French orbit. And the Soviet says, you, you try to do that, we'll cripple your nation. Because back then, the Communist Party was pretty powerful in France. So they looked at this and said, okay, we have no capabilities, um, but if we take everything else in, America's politically neutralized, France we can shut down, now we have an open space to, 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 to support our guerrillas. And of course, uh, you know, initial phase. So what we see in 2003 is they come up with a defense white paper. You can go online, look, look this one up. But this actually outlines Russian strategy about how they're going to project power in the world. Now, again, it goes back to the, the correlation of forces. And all conflicts have asymmetrical nature. Again, the idea, especially if you're looking at Russia or even the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union did not have a powerful navy. The Americans had a very powerful navy in 1974. But if you would look at Russia now, or even in 2003, they were militarily very weak. Again, so the initial phases are important. So this is why, for example, you see all the, um, why do they spend all this money developing connections, but we don't see an end state with all these connections that develop, you know, whether it be with their NGOs uh, co making contact here with, with American counterparts or European counterparts. Why? Because they want to have those, they want to be ready there for that initial phase. And this is why, for example, if we look in cyberspace, why are they always constantly messing in cyberspace? Because we don't know what we're going to see, what our objective is, but we have to be there always at the initial phase. Um, again, it goes to this idea, not only the military, but political, command, control, populations, infrastructure are the primary targets. So if you're poor Ukraine, was it 2015, was the hack of their power network, was takedown, everything's available for them. They don't have any restrictions because guess what? Guess what laws of land warfare are and not using children or journalists? What are they? Constructs of the ruling class. This comes from that communist mindset. What are rule, what are norms? What are rules? What are morality? Oh, those are just constructs of the ruling class. And so the Russians have that same mindset. They said the only reason they have that we have all these rules that you know we're supposed to behave in cyberspace or in international affairs or how or who we use as intelligence. Uh, personnel is all based off of America trying to keep control of the world. So information electronic warfare have a great impact and if you look at 2003 it was sort of a, um, as I said, it, it was sort of like they, they were understanding that something was coming up but they really didn't, if you read the defense white paper, they really didn't articulate very well how they saw information electronic warfare shape up but we'll see it happen. Unified and command and joint cooperation is essential. Have they achieved that? Have we observed them achieving that? This actually came from their experience in Chechnya because in the first Chechen war, they had five different command structures. They had the local Chechens, they had the police force, they had the um, FSB, they had the, the different branches of the military, and two-thirds of the casualties that they had in Chechnya were from fratricide. Mm -hmm. You know, we have uh, roughly a third of our casualties, a quarter of a third of our casualties in, in combat are from fratricide, or at least this was during the first Gulf War, um, they had nearly 70% of casualties from fratricide. Something, by the way, we, we don't see. So if you observe them doing their intelligence operations, if you see their APT, Advanced Persistent Threats, in cyberspace, there doesn't seem to be any unified command and control. They've never been able to achieve that. 
And if you if you read an article by Mark Galetti talking about the, the Hydra, Putin's Hydra, he actually encourages the intelligence agencies to be in competition with each other. Um, and this actually is, um, there's two journalists called, uh, was it Irina Baragadan and Soldatev, um, they wrote a book, they had a blog called agentura.ru, which covered the Russian intelligence services. They do write occasionally. Um, I think one of them was actually the son or the daughter of a Russian intelligence general. And said, if you're, if you're in a democratic open society, leadership has many, has many inputs to understand what they're doing, whether it's working or not. You have a free press, you have different civil society organizations, you have different open government ministries that are talking to each other, but in a closed system, like Russia has, the only way that the leader can get different perspective is if he has rival agencies competing with each other, giving him different bits of information. Okay, so uh, precision weapons. Um, so in 2003, Russia was really in on precision weapons. Uh, once air superiority is established. So what are they seeing? They're, they're looking at air, air superiority, air defense, and precision weapons. And by the way, conventional forces are important after the precision war society. So what was going on in 2003? Yeah, That's what the Russians saw. And by the way, um, and this was Russian shock and awe in 2003. This was actually a picture from a, uh, a book written by the Russian general who commanded forces in the Second Chechen War. And this was a picture that he showed, he, he was commanding in the First Chechen War, now he was the overall commander. Well, he took his picture and said, you want to know why our military performed so poorly in the first Chechen war? This is our shock and awe that we have. And so the Russians looked at it and said, okay, air, air defense is important. Um, and this is why we see with the SS-400 and SS-300, why they're really pushing that, because they looked at that Iraq experience and said, we can't beat the Americans in airplanes, we can beat them with air defense. Go ahead, sir. Uh, question regarding conventional forces. Uh, where do their special operations forces, i.e. Spetsnaz, that fits in that picture? Um, it, that is, if we look at their employment on that, um, the pace of diplomacy, if we, if we, a big comparison between the Western way of looking at war and the, Amer and the uh, Russian way of looking at war, and we're talking about special forces, and this includes conventional forces, is they are used after the political environment is set, after the political situation is set. So who negotiated the peace treaty with, or the ceasefire treaty in 1991 when the war was over in Iraq, the first Gulf War? General Schwarzkopf. Americans, we fight the war, then we do politics afterwards, right? What do the Russians do? Do politics, do everything else before they even think about employing kinetic forces. Big difference that you see. So why do we? So it's going to. They haven't achieved an advantage in precision weapon systems, but where do they have a unique competitive advantage? Cyberspace. And why is that? Uh, mainly because they produce a lot of highly qualified people with IT, information technology, IT skills, but don't have the industry to support them. So they have to do something in the meantime. Steal your credit cards, put ransomware on your computer. These skill sets are really good when you're conducting cyber warfare. And it's very interesting because if we see, for example, a lot of the, um, the malware that's developed in Russia, if your language setting for your computer or your Android device is set in Russian, if you're in any other language setting, it will affect it. Because they tell these hackers, you guys go do what you want, but don't do anything inside Russia. So these hackers know, okay, make sure the language settings, uh, we don't attack, attack any system that has a language setting of Russian. 
So again, we see this lack of precision weapons. So they're operating cyberspace, which is their vector to try to shape to shape us as the as the adversary. And we call it what do we call it? Hybrid warfare, right? And this is very interesting. Why do we call it hybrid warfare? Multi-headed. Oh, multi-headed. But if we call it hybrid warfare or ambiguous warfare because that is what the Russians are doing, and we are not. And the Russians actually have a very different perspective. So if you look at, I teach a class on hybrid warfare, and I think last that I saw there was 14 different, different definitions from the Western side on what hybrid warfare is. And that was actually, the term hybrid warfare came in 2006 to explain what Hezbollah was doing against Israel during the, the, the war that they had in Lebanon. And the Russians actually do, they actually have the term hybrid warfare, but it has a completely different meaning. For the Russians, hybrid warfare is everything but kinetic. And if you believe yourself, by the way, in a state of war, constant state of war, and you always have to have the initiative, um, and we talk about who's telling about the country under constant threat. Russians, by the way, feel themselves under constant threat. So they feel themselves, we're already at a state of war no matter what happens. They've got this under communism, but by the way, it also occurred under Tsarist times as well because they were battling the people from the steppes. So when we look at hybrid warfare, though, the most important thing, if you want to look at what is hybrid warfare in the Russian mind, and this is actually what the Latvian defense paper puts up, is that the, um, that the main battle space is the mind. And actually, this was well articulated um, before. Um, so in 1998, this was a book written by two PLAF Chinese uh, colonels. Who's heard of the book Unrestricted Warfare, 1998? It's very interesting. The original cover shows the Death Star. And remember what the, the first Star Wars movie? <coughs> what happens to the Death Star? Or the, not the prequel, are you? Um, <laughs> the, the one, yeah. Um, yeah. So basically, they look at the United States as this empire. When you find that one vulnerability, just like in the Death Star, you can take it out. But one of the things is the big key word that the Chinese use is compel the enemy to accept one's interests. Again, what is the main thing? Are you here to destroy his armies? Are you here to take out his economy? No. You're supposed to do any action that compels him to accept your interest. And that's a Chinese term. The Russians actually, um, a guy who wrote uh, on hybrid warfare was actually a Russian himself um, who lived in obscurity. So this is actually, if you want to read about hybrid warfare, there's this gentleman called Yevgeny Messner. He was chief of staff for Wrangel, who was one of the commanders of the one of the white Russian forces in the Russian Civil War. And he was actually, and he went to Yugoslavia after the revolution, or after the Civil War ended. And then he advised the German army during World War II in fighting the Soviets. And then he went to Buenos Aires, he went to Brazil, I mean, Argentina, and he died in obscurity in 1974. Only about 200 copies. He's, he printed three books on hybrid warfare, one 1959, one 1960, and one 1972. And they had about 200 prints that happened. Died in obscurity in Buenos Aires. He is now required reading for most Russian officers and strategic planners after the fall of the Soviet Union. And he was looking at warfare in the 1950s and 1960s. And he came up with a term, he was the one that coined the term hybrid warfare. But he said, the center of gravity is not the military, it's not the economic, but the psychological domain. And he used the term conquering soul. And he said, by the way, we're in a constant state of war. War exists everywhere. And this is the Russian mindset. You know, war isn't something, you know, like when we fight with Iraq, 
we take out the army, we win the war. The war that phase of the war, that war is over, and now we're fighting these guerrillas. But that's a different war. But now they always believe everything is in the constancy of war. And it goes, he says, look, time of war is going vulgar. What he means by that is we're not following rules anymore. So if you send a, if you take out the power grid and people die in the hospital because respirators get shut down or equipment gets shut down, that's just the way vulgar wars are fought. And he says, by the way, he's basically, and very interesting during this time of the Cold War, you had pretty well two camps. You had the communist camp and you had the Western, the, the American camp, right? And you had the, you had the, the, the non-aligned countries. But he says, the way the wars are going to be fought is everybody against everybody. And this is actually read Dugan's Net-Centric Warfare. He worked first with Panarin, the other Russian thinker that's alive in, in Russia now. Talk about everybody being against everybody. Who tries to follow the relationships in the Middle East? You know who's on? Is there any like brand unifying theory as to who two sides or even three sides? Everybody's against everybody there. And and we see, for example, again, what's over Friedman says everybody is against everybody. So when we see we see Russian cyberspace continuously doing activity there, we don't see any clear end state with them, and we don't. And there's no reason as to why, for example, they may go after the Chinese. They don't care. They're going to go after anybody they can. It's everybody against everybody. So what do we see? So what are some of these specific examples we see? So we see the how. How is through this hybrid warfare? And how do you know it's hybrid warfare in the Russian mindset? It's everything but Connecticut. And your main target is the psychological domain, is the soul. So what do we see? So if you look at their propaganda, that you see who is it targeting? Targets not only the target audience, but your domestic audience. And we're talking about the Russian domestic audience. So this is the propaganda that was targeting, that was going on in Ukraine. Um, it was the choice. So this image shows uh, the Ukrainian chooses between the decadent West uh, and the strong, proud Soviet heritage that they had, and the proud, you know, the proud Slavic heritage that they had. But do you think Ukrainians saw this? Really bought this propaganda that much? Probably not that much for those who've been in Ukraine. You know, it actually probably has more appeal in, in, in certain segments of American society or Western society than this something like this. And, but it also has a strong effect on their own population. Because when you're fighting this hybrid warfare, not only are you targeting the adversary, but you're also targeting your own population. So if we look at RT, I like to look at RT because um, I'll say, if you look at anybody regain literature, I call this how to date large groups of people. Because, first of all, what they look for is they're not there. RT is not targeting, you know, a large percentage of the American audience. All they want is a small percentage. And if you look at close elections, that makes it all the difference. So if you look at it, as you build rapport with people. You get people comfortable with you. So are you covering uh, pro-Putin uh, news articles in RT? No. What are they talking about? And actually, when they looked at the 2016 election, who did they mostly have on in their political coverage in RT America? Bernie people, anti-vaxxers, the, the wonderful benefits of marijuana. I mean, I mean seriously, if you looked at the, what their program was, it was basically I'm building rapport with the American people on topics they agree with or they can sympathize with. And I'm going to talk about Russia. And by the way, uh, social proofing. So you get a, a, a big personality like Larry King. Um, a lot of people trust him with certain demographics. You know, uh, you know who, a lot of people here are younger, but who in 1992, uh, was probably the reason why Clinton got elected was because of Larry King. Because he encouraged this guy called Ross Perot to run as a third candidate, siphon enough votes off, and you know, may have uh, may have turned or 
probably turned the election for Clinton. But he, by the way, it's very interesting that when they were looking at the analysis of the 2016 election, they said that the first people who showed up to vote were people who didn't vote since 1992. It's very interesting that you have Larry King, who was a major figure in 1992. Um, so we get anti-vaxxers. So this is what we're seeing. So again, um, we don't see any pro-Russian stuff. Okay. So if we look at uh, cyber threat intelligence, these are some of the lessons that we're getting when we're looking at Russia now acting in cyberspace. Uh, it's first of all, multiple actors, lots of non-state actors. I think it's pretty, um, and a lot of times they do things without even realizing they've done it. You know, they, they um, I'm trying to come up with an example, but they'll hack something and they didn't actually intend on hacking it. I mean, if we look at, I'm, I'm not gonna talk about the 2016, you know, reports or stuff like this, but sometimes they're surprised at what information they're able to get. Like, for example, the WikiLeaks or, or the Panama Papers. Um, and again, preparation occurs long before, before the attack. So those who here is in the cyber threat intelligence field, you know, so they do, when you're, attack, when you're going after a target, you're doing all the prep work 18 months, two years in advance before you do this. Again, this for Russian mindset, this works out very well. Um, and you take advantage of geopolitical events to do then your exfiltration. So if you've taken over a system and you want to exfiltrate information, you do that with certain events. Now we saw some stuff that happened in Crimea um, some major uh, exfiltrations of information that happened in Crimea, but surprisingly, were not related to Russia. Um, and one of the things you have to be very careful about is the six degrees of separation. So if this person is associated with this person, with this person, there's probably not a direct connection. So, but Russia likes to do that. They like to, to associate with people, even though Russia's not directing it. You know, if they're, if they're communicating with this group of hackers, they may not be directing those hackers but they want to establish a tie, so at least it gives them that, this idea of dark power. Who's heard of the term called dark power? Go ahead. Um, so dark power, go ahead. You want to know dark, dark power? Uh, me? Uh, dark power, uh, it's uh, what I can uh, tell it's uh, illicit power. Uh, right. A power uh, over criminal organizations? Yeah, so dark power sort of means like, you, you, know, you know what soft power is? Soft power is the attraction that your country has. So if you want to look at a case of soft power is, when we went into Iraq in 2003, what did the Iraqi soldiers do? Surrendered. Because everybody knows Americans are good guys. That's our soft power. And it worked very well on the battlefield, right? And so there's two terms of dark power. One is, uh, Mark Galetti described Russian dark power is sort of the idea is like, I'm gonna do what Russia wants because I'm worried about what they could do. But the other one that we see a lot, which, they call, which is another description of Russian dark power is, the, the credit card system in England goes down, and we somehow have to blame the Russians. It could have been spent something completely unrelated to Russia. And Russia likes to use that. They actually like to promote rumors that when you know, a credit card system goes down, or something, you know, power goes offline, they like to actually spread rumors. They had nothing to do with it. But they like to spread rumors that somehow Russia was involved with it. They don't, a lot of times if you see them, there was a case in England where it happens actually regularly is the credit card system on, on the national rails go down. And somebody was blaming, um, there was a parliamentary committee saying it was a possible Russian uh, attack. Russians didn't even say anything in response. Russians probably didn't have anything to do with it. It was just probably bad IT or something. So, but what one of the things that they did was, um, who's heard of Dragonfly? Dragonfly attack. So what's very interesting was, um, they saw the spear fishing, the water holes in 2030, but then the exfiltration happened in March 2014. So what was going on in March 2014? Crimean invasion, right? 
everybody think? Who was, who was the APT? And it's very interesting because I was actually in the class, we actually looked at the indicators compromise of the of SANS class. And um, everybody thought it was the Russians. You know, most people thought it was the Russians uh, looking at the who, who's targeted, you know, they're looking at the geopolitical events. But it was actually me and one other coworker, it was actually, he's a, he's a Farsi speaker. And we we're saying, well, unless it's some obscure provincial city where all the hackers were working with obscure provincial city in eastern in western Siberia. And by the way, there's a few indicators that there's Farsi words in the script. We said it was actually from Iran. But everybody thought it was from Russia. So, um, and this is where the quote is, some string codes of malware were Russian, however, some were in French, which indicate one of the languages may be a false language, false flight. Actually, it's probably both languages with false flights. Because everybody was looking at the political, big political event, and Russia liked it. It was like, oh, this is great dark power for us. But it was actually, the, it was most likely the Iranians. But yeah, the attribution is really hard to get. So, but what is the limitations? What is the limitation for this asymmetric warfare? It's not all powerful. Here's the reality. If you, if you confront an enemy, you um, if you confront an enemy who's determined to defeat you, they'll win. Look at what happened in the Cold War. Look what happened in World War II. We won. And the Russians know that, that if they get confronted, they'll have to back down. And right now we see this, for example, with the Chinese. They're sort of baffled because Americans are not backing down now. So, and this is very interesting because in 2014, so you all know who Gerasimov is, the Gerasimov Doctrine. Which anyone who says Gerasimov Doctrine, don't listen to them. And actually Mark Galetti came up with that term and he apologizes profusely for it. But he was actually giving the speech in 2014. He says, we used to be masters of asymmetric warfare. But guess who actually beat us now? The Americans in the West have done it. And that was the whole thing of the speech. He said, Russians, you better get your act together because the Americans actually can beat us at asymmetric warfare better than we can. So what we see um, on, what, what we see with Russia, especially when it comes to meddling with our democratic system, is a heads, you win, heads I win, tails you lose approach. So what did we see with the 2016 election? What did everybody, what did everybody say? You know, or a lot of people saying Trump, Trump was, was, was supported by the Russians. What had, what if Hillary had gotten elected? There was enough evidence of Russia meddling with the voting systems in a lot of key critical states. Um, you know, her, her business relationships with, with her associates, the same thing could have happened to her had she been president. And this gives a situation where Russia wins both ways. They're, they're leaving indicators of compromise on the Republican sides and the election, the, the voting system, so that people can say, well, maybe it was the Russians were helping Hillary. Like why we see this with what they were doing with the Democrats. So what is the main, what is the big objective? Remember, we want, they want to weaken the United States. They want to weaken the West. Break the bond between leaders and their people. And, we, and they were very effective in 1974. Basically, 1974 to 1980, um, they looked at that period where that was when the Soviet Union was able to, they nearly reshape the international system. And this is, if you look at the 1970s, they want to try to replicate this. They've actually achieved it to good effect with our political system for the past three years. They've managed to paralyze it. Um, and, and this is now, they're in a period of strategic breakout. I, I just finished writing an article that got published in France on the Russian military in a year of strategic breakout. Because right now, Russia is facing the same situation in the 1970s. However, they don't have 
economic strength or the military strength to actually go out and take over countries like they did in the 1970s. So some other consideration when we're dealing with the Russians is when you practice what they preach, they follow their doctrine. So if this is what Yevgeny Mester is saying what hybrid warfare is like, you better read Yevgeny Mester. And that will help you understand what the Russians are going to do. Uh, we think logically and legalistically. And a cost consideration for both sides. Why do Russians like to use cyber? Why do they like to use propaganda? It's a lot cheaper than tanks and planes. And by the way, when we scream and complain about hybrid warfare and hackers, yeah, it's cheaper than having, it's cheaper than putting extra brigades in, in the Baltic countries. Complaining about Russia is a lot cheaper. Talk is cheap. So we like it on both sides. Um, so when we look at countering Russian influence campaigns, we actually have to look at, at Putin as the effect, not the cause of the, the uh, Russian system. So if you read a book how, um, on the Russian system, so who's, who's lived in Russia or the Soviet Union? Yeah, you know what the system is? Yeah, it's the overarching, uh, it's, 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 it's a mess, okay? And it's really funny that when things happen with the Russians we were attacking, we want to hold Putin accountable for it. So trust me, you get rid of Putin, you're going to have somebody else who is going to be, the system's going to be running by itself. It's sort of like the board. Russians are going to continue to do the hacking. Why? Because Russians have a, a messianic complex. They believe that they're elite. So some kid living, they don't have basements in Russia, but, you know, living on, on mom's balcony at the apartment, right? Those are in Russia. He's out there doing his hacking. He believes that Russia has a special messianic destiny. You know, you get rid of Putin, you get rid of all his inner circle, guess who's going to come in his place? It's just nothing more than, you know, he's a product of the, of the Russian system. So again, the other thing that we look at, and I see this, we see this in the West, is if we scapegoat Russia, we don't solve our inherent problems of social vulnerabilities. And if we look at the Cold War, there's some pretty profound lessons here. And I actually show this picture here of, this in Birmingham in the 1960s, the civil rights movement that was going on. That was very powerful propaganda that the Soviets used against America, especially in the Third World. And so what did we do? We did internal reforms to counter that, because we had to reduce the decisive terrain for the USSR. But we actually have to look at our own system and say, are we leaving decisive terrain, psychological terrain, for the Russians to take advantage of? So if we look at the Cold War lesson, we established a welfare state, we did civil rights. You know, that reduced the decisive terrain for the, for, for the USSR. We also have to learn to accept the legitimacy of our government. And what do we see? Who's heard of the term called deep state? I imagine everybody's heard, right? Um, I was an army officer, and there's, who here was in the military? Uh, officer in the military? There's UCMJ, right? What does it say? What can you, what can you not do as an as a officer in the US military? Speak disparagingly of elected officials. They will punch you for that. When, I was, when I'd be watching the Armed Forces Network television, and they were always reminding you, don't speak badly about elected officials. We may have to bring that, especially with we see everything that happened with the, the investigation. We may have to bring that back with our civil service. We may have, you know, you can't stop somebody from posting what they want on Facebook, but in the office space, you may have to put very strict rules about that. Contractors as well. So we have to learn, to, you know, what what is the advantage of this, that the Russians have now? Is that half of the American people don't accept the authority of our current elected government? That serves Russian interests perfectly. And especially if you have people within the U.S. government that don't do that. So we have to look at that. Um, we have to um, have an alternative, uh, we, we have an alternative to the Soviet system. And this is where we engage the Soviets. Now, who drove the reforms in the Soviet Union in the 1980s? Gorbachev. Okay. Um, okay well, but 
who was a class, who was a, who were the people that supported Gorbachev with reform? Was it the coal miners, the farmers, the people suppressed? Who was it? It was, it was actually the elites of the Soviet Union who traveled to the West. They saw a different system and said, this is better. So when we put, you know, one of the challenges we have is we're bringing sanctions on people or we're trying to isolate the Russians. I said, we actually are isolating now um, a lot of Russian, um, a lot of Russian, how do you say, Russian society from Western society more than we did uh, the West. You know, West is always open in the Cold War. We're actually isolated. We're, we're doing a lot of things that are isolating them. But what we want to do is actually bring them over here and says, look, this is what it's like to live in a country where the police don't take bribes. Um, this is where you can actually make an appeal to, to, to government officials and they get hurt. But they don't see that. Russians don't see that. This is why it's very important to actually engage them, like we did in the Soviet Union, at least at that level, because they're going to drive reforms. Transparency and debate. So one of the things is what is going on right now in our in American society? Everybody seems to have some conspiracy because nothing's being transparent. Facebook is taking down this, Twitter's taking down that. Reality is, you know, just like in the 1970s when we with the church commission, we opened up our records, we made we made our government more transparent. We also have to look at um, treat our social media as a system that they be more transparent. Because if you're not, conspiracy theories start to develop. That plays straight into the, what the Russians want. But people don't even trust the news that they hear. All right, so some new vulnerabilities that we have, um, especially when it comes when it comes into cyberspace, is we have what they call who's heard of the term called monocultures. When you use when you use one crop, when you're using just one type of corn, what happens if that disease wipes out that whole crop? You have a disruption. Well, we have the same situation now with our with our with our cyber infrastructure. We're having a lot of monosystems being developed, you know, monoculture being developed. So one of the things we have to look at, and you know, if, if we have one type of payment system that's going on, and we don't have alternate payment systems, if you take out that one particular payment system, now you've left the whole society vulnerable. If we look at societies, I mean, you say what you want, but if you take cash out of the system, what happens when the main system, the credit cards get shut down, the bank cards get shut down? Is your society resilient enough now to have, or do you have another way of making uh, which country is going? Was it Finland that went cashless? I'm trying to remember. There's like one European society, that, one country that actually went cashless. Um, and one of the things is we get atomized individuals. So I'm giving a talk in two weeks about uh, influencing in, in, uh, influencing in cyberspace with uh, with intelligence. I will talk into all the issues that we are now facing because of. We now live in a cyberized world. People are becoming area atomized. We see this, for example, this was a huge, certain, that's why I put bowling alone there, a lack of social capital anymore, or social things to bring people together, and we see polarization. Five minutes, perfect. Excellent. So we have self-selecting groups. Any questions? Perfect time. Okay. Yes, sir. Um, when, I and other, when I and others do uh, demographic protections, we actually see a, uh, a Muslim-dominant Russia Somewhere between 2016 and 2070. So one of the questions, uh, when does Russia turn on its Muslims? We already have the military disproportionately Muslim. Uh, the hierarchy has been reluctant to send those troops to Syria, for example. Um, and second of all, why is the Russian man on the street so willing to allow his son to bomb a hospital or a school in Syria? It would think with even a minimum of religious conviction that 
be so appalling that people would, in fact, resist. So, so, so let me answer the second question with a little bit Russians, as we see it in cyberspace, rules and norms, are nothing more than contrast to the ruling class. There's a Russian joke. So even something like laws of land warfare, they don't follow that. And they're not going to. Because their society has been so stripped. I mean, that actually occurred during the Tsar's time. There was a, there was a real break of, of moral value systems, even during the Tsar's times, which then led to communism. Which even further eroded. So we see Russia today. They don't care about it. If you if you look at you know, I'm not going to pick on pick on one particular country, but their moral values are, are are atrocious, especially when it comes to stuff online. You know, whether it be theft, pornography, you know, human trafficking, drugs. Um, and then the first one is on uh, the second one is on the Muslim population. Um, if you actually actually open Russia society, actually has on their website a lot of good coverage on. Seen conflict that's going on in Russia. It's actually going on right now, the violence. Um, so there it is going on now, but the Russian government suppresses it. Yes? Uh, Peter, how, uh, how would you uh, view the recent dissolving of the government in Russia, the, the parliament? Uh, how does that relate to the messianic model that you described of Putin? Okay, yeah. so I wanna, I'm going to call that question. Does anyone have more cyber-related or cyber operations questions? I want to get those first. We're darn limited time. Yes. Well, I, I can remember I, my, my spouse was uh, worked for Wang back in the late 70s and 80s. And the, um, the Russians back then, they had just mainframe type uh, IT equipment. And they were like behind the curve for like uh, um, PCs and, yes. and uh, Wi-Fi, stuff like that. What is it is what happened? Is that uh, they were able to just make the jump into? So what, what happened was in the 1930s, uh, they the, the origin of computer science comes from cybernetics, and what Stalin did was the idea that you could have something that wasn't controlled by a central committee was an anathema. So all the cyberneticists and cyber theorists were all thrown in the gulags. So Russia basically lost 30 years. They realized that in the 1960s and realized they needed to catch up. So if you look at Russia in the 1980s, so those who went to the Soviet Union were actually reading books on computers. They didn't even have computers in the schools because they realized they wiped out a whole generation and had to catch up. Also on the subject of cyber technology, um, about a year ago I did a research paper on uh, EMP threat. While most have focused on, we <clears throat> typically think EMP threat, you know, nuclear weapon detonated by the Earth's atmosphere, there was also segments on how the, our national power grid can be targeted via cyber warfare. So how, Seeing how Russia does have EMP in its against national war plans, how, how much focus are they treating their, their cyber warriors as, as far as ability to, to attack the national grid and cause a total disruption? Our, ours? Well, we see it with Ukraine. Unfortunately, with, fortunately, with Ukraine, was because it had the very antiquated system, then they were actually sent, able to send technical personnel along. You know, things were not controlled by a central computer, so they could actually go on mobile phones and say, okay, turn this switch, turn this switch. They actually had an analog. The Ukrainians were lucky they had an analog system. So this is when we talk about the vulnerabilities is this monoculture that we've developed. You know, everybody's using Windows operating system. Or, you know, we're, we're using uh, these type of protocols. Maybe we need to, especially with all these critical infrastructures, develop a home system that's not tied in to, to uh, that's a standalone. Okay. Any other questions? Yes, sir. One more question. Your thoughts on Russia's legacy colonial wise in Africa? 
and also they seem to be amassing in the Central African Republic. There's rumblings in, in the Congo. Um, they're back. So what what are they doing in Africa? Um, okay, so we got that about Russia. So anything else about cyber before I get those questions? Okay. Um, Putin take, so your question is about Putin and messianic vision. So I don't think I have, do I have that here. Um, Putin wants to become a Putin basically wants to become a saint. You know, so he's trying to keep, uh, keep his legacy there. I mean, he. I've actually talked to a guy who knew him personally. Uh, this was in London. I talked to Valery Solovyev. By the way, this is my contact information. Um, I had, we had dinner together, and he actually met Putin on several occasions. Talked to him. Know people in his inner circle. And he says, and I didn't believe this because I thought Putin was, a, was an atheist, um, just cynically using religion. He says, no, Putin actually believes it. He has two monks in his inner circle. He has a shaman, a Buddhist shaman in his inner circle. He goes to Siberia regularly to get spiritually refreshed. This guy believes he has a messianic purpose. Mm -hmm. So I didn't believe that until I had a discussion with Belay Salavid. This um, your question about Af um, basically they, they see an opportunity there. It's most you know, but they have limited resources. That's why they're in central you know Central African Republic because it's really put the other ways they can they can leverage their resources. So go ahead. Yeah, I was wondering. Uh, Talk about uh, them being a messianic uh, uh, sort of people. Uh, is that is, does that have something to do with the parallelism between like the two-headed eagle in the Roman yes. Empire flag and the two-headed eagle in the Russian? Yeah. So, well, this goes through. Uh, I can quote you the Book of Maccabees and stuff like that, and, and draw it all the way back. But this is why Russia and Turkey, for example, are doing strategic partnerships where they realize, just like with, with Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union, yes, we'll carve up the world. But eventually, we'll turn on each other because both those countries, Turkey <coughs> and Russia, see themselves as the successor of the Roman Empire. But it's uh, the Ottoman Empire. It's actually called the, the Sultanate of Rome. <coughs> the official title of the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire was the Roman Emperor. The word Tsar comes from Caesar. Yeah. Okay, that wraps it up. Um, if you want to get get with me offline, we can talk. I'll answer your other questions. <coughs> Sorry, no, my voice just died. Thank Excellent. Thank you very much.